You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, editor-at-large at The Diplomat and the Stanton Senior Fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. I'm glad to be joined today by a former colleague of mine at The Diplomat, uh, a name that I'm sure will be very familiar to longtime readers and listeners of the podcast. Uh, Franz Stefan Gotti joins me today. Franz, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Ankit. I'm really glad to be back on the program. Great chatting with you. Yeah, and you know, just uh, I thought we could open by um, you know giving you an opportunity to tell listeners uh, what you've been up to. Uh, you're now a research fellow at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Uh, tell us a little bit about the topics that you're currently working on pertaining to the future of war in Asia and elsewhere. Sure, absolutely. So I joined the Institute for International Strategic Studies about a year and a half ago, and my focus is on cyberspace and future conflict and especially the integration of um, those different uh, dimensions or um, also military capabilities in those dimensions and trying to figure out how to best integrate um, kinetic, non-kinetic um, capabilities in future warfighting scenarios and just generally think about emerging technologies and how they might impact future warfighting and future conflict. So uh, I've been pretty busy the last year and a half and I've been uh, working on a couple of interesting uh, research projects. And so um, I'm really happy that we can chat a little bit about this during our uh, get together today. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, just for listeners, the reason uh, that you know, Franz is on the show today is actually to talk about a um, recently published chapter that he prepared for IISS uh, looking at the role that certain uh, so-called emerging technologies might play in a Taiwan Strait contingency or conflict uh, involving the United States and China primarily, uh, but also um, the Taiwanese military uh, directly. And so, Franz, you know, I want to sort of go through some of the scenarios and the technologies that you sort of bring up in this excellent report. Um, you know, let me let me begin by just reflecting a little bit, though. I mean, you know, there are obviously um, talking about a Taiwan Strait conflict has become a very sort of common topic in Asian security and strategic circles, uh, not only in Washington, um, but in Europe, at least in parts of Europe uh, and certainly in Asia uh, over the last few years. Uh, there are uncertainties and certainties here, of course. The uncertainties, of course, I think pertain to how any future conflict might begin or how it might develop and how escalation might actually look in practice. Those things are practically unknowable until a conflict actually begins. Um, but, you know, the certainties that we do have and I think are useful to reflect on are regarding, first of all, the strategic orientation of the People's Republic of China under Xi Jinping. I mean, she has made really no secret of the fact that unification with Taiwan continues to be a, a core strategic objective uh, related to China's core national interests. Uh, it, uh, China continues to see Taiwan as a part of its territory. And in the meantime, we've had... Um, you know, a series of developments in Taiwan over the last decade plus pointing in the direction of a, a new sort of Taiwan, um, a process of Taiwanization where Taiwanese national identity is inherently becoming much more entrenched uh, in terms of um, the identity of the island itself and less with a broader Chinese identity. And uh, combining these two, combining sort of broader concerns about the U.S. military's ability to practice effective deterrence by denial in the Taiwan Strait, uh, concerns continue to grow about this kind of conflict breaking out. 
Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll try to sort of steer clear of the political factors that might lead into a conflict and, and focus really on the military hardware, which is something that, uh, you know, I haven't done for, in a while on this podcast. And I'm actually really glad that we get to sort of uh, geek out a little bit over some of these technologies and the and the, and the roles that they might play. Um, so, Franz, you know, I won't I won't introduce the concepts, uh, you know, the scenarios that you describe, but maybe very quickly before we sort of delve into some of these issues, do you want to just walk us through the four primary scenarios that you explore in your chapter? Sure, sure. Um, just also very briefly, I agree wholeheartedly with your, what you just said. And I also just want to emphasize again that these, these scenarios are by, in no way um, uh, are, ought, ought to be predictive of any future conflict uh, based on any sort of uh, political analysis when it comes to China and the United States and uh, China-Taiwan relations and so forth. I'm really merely using those scenarios to illustrate um, the character of future warfighting. So ju just, just, to make, uh, just to be clear on that. And so um, I essentially in that chapter, which is, by the way, part of a larger publication called the Regional Security Assessment, which gets published by my company, the Institute for International Strategic Studies, once a year in the lead up to the Shangri-La Dialogue, which sadly was canceled uh, this year. Hopefully we'll be back next year in full form. Um, in any case, so I, in my, in, my, in my short chapter in that book, I'm, I'm focusing on four fictional war scenarios that are really just meant to showcase how emerging technological capabilities could be used in a future Sino-US military confrontation over Taiwan in around 2030 or in the 2030s, broadly, broadly speaking. And I have two scenarios that focus on the United States, where the United States is the principal actor, and then two scenarios that are more focused on uh, China right, with Chinese military commanders and forces as the main actors here. So um, my two US scenarios, I have one scenario where um, it is about the deployment of AI-enabled intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance capabilities to track Chinese mobile ballistic missile forces. That's one scenario. I have another scenario that's about AI-enabled offensive cyber capabilities that are used to degrade uh, Chinese uh, People's Liberation Army command and control communications. This actually leads to inadvertent nuclear escalation, as I describe it in my uh, scenario. Between uh, nuclear and conventional command and control capabilities uh, within the People's Liberation Army. And then I have uh, two more uh, China focused or two scenarios from the Chinese perspective. One is on uh, hypersonics, where um, I essentially describe a scenario where the PLA or the PLA rocket force rather uses hypersonic missiles to target US naval strike groups beyond the first island chain. And then also one uh, scenario where uh, I'm talking about uninhabited systems, both in the air and um, underneath, uh, uh, like in the ocean. So that that uh, scenario pertains to the Chinese PLA employment of um, uninhabited aerial vehicles or drones, uh, as, as, as you can also call them, in the suppression of enemy air defense campaign over Taiwan. And then also um, a swarm of underwater drones or underwater uh, unmanned vehicles targeting a U.S. carrier strike group. So here it's really mostly about swarming and uninhabited systems. So mm -hmm. these are my four scenarios. And then uh, each scenario is accompany accompanied by um, a section that really describes um, the, the current state of affairs when it comes to technological developments in 2021 
when it comes to all the technological capabilities that are described here, and then also a section that goes beyond and just tries to uh, beyond the United States and China and tries to look at what other Asian Pacific countries are doing in those respective fields. But I think it's really important to me to emphasize the reason why I wrote this chapter is really to move away a little bit from this uh, technological conversation, because whenever we think about future conflict, the first thing we think about are fancy new or rather emerging technological capabilities that are going to alter the character of warfare. And my main point here, uh, my main uh, reason for writing this chapter is actually that I want to move away a little bit from this technological deterministic interpretation of uh, future conflict, where I say it's an important component, of course, the technology, but there are also other factors that perhaps even are sometimes more important, such as the right doctrine, getting the right doctrine, um, operating concepts, but also organizational structures and so forth. And then perhaps most importantly, and uh, strangely often neglected leadership, to yep. what degree leadership can shape the character of future warfare. I was just In about to case, say, yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, political leadership and decision making are essential to the course of, of, of any future conflict. And I think, you know, we know that from history. We know that from, I mean, sheer, you know, strategic logic when we think about these scenarios. Um, you know, so I, I will sort of counsel listeners here, uh, you know, if any of those scenarios sounded interesting to you and you haven't yet read the chapter, I'd recommend that you pause the podcast, read the chapter, and then come back and hit play because uh, we're not going to go through the, the fine details. So we just don't have enough time on the episode to talk through the, uh, you know, those issues. Um, but Franz, you know, I was hoping that we could focus a little bit on sort of some higher order questions that sort of come out of some of the scenarios that you um, delve into. Um, so, you know, you your first footnote, uh, which I was very pleased to see, of course, notes that the definition of what is considered an emerging technology is very fuzzy. You know, those of us who reside in the think tank world, of course, are very familiar with, um, you know, seeing this term sort of bandied about in papers. It's, uh, it's, it's sort of a very kind of sexy thing to sort of present to um, prospective, I guess, uh, you know, funders, organizers to say, hey, you know, we're working on emerging technologies. This is all exciting and new and is going to totally revolutionize the nature of, of warfare and and human conflict. But, you know, when you sort of slow down and you sort of start thinking about some of these terms that get used, like hypersonic weapons, artificial intelligence, uh, you begin to sort of realize, I mean, you know, maybe, I mean, first of all, in some ways, you know, these aren't necessarily emerging in, in quite the way that uh, the term might sort of lead some people to think that it is, that, you know, this is something that came out of nowhere in, let's say, 2017, 2018 or so. These are uh, older terms. So I want to sort of, you know, push you a little bit on that. I mean, um, you know, AI is particularly prominent in uh, the first two scenarios that you describe. And I was wondering if for our listeners, you could just kind of explain a little bit about what exactly artificial intelligence integration into intelligence surveillance reconnaissance or ISR or offensive cyber capabilities looks like in practice. Because, you know, I mean, on in, in some places you'll see folks, I mean, describe things that might be as rudimentary as you know, basic statistical analysis, which has been informing sort of military campaigns and warfighting going back to the second half of the 20th century or so, um, all the way to, you know, uh, more advanced machine learning techniques. And then, of course, there's the, uh, you know, Rocco's Basilisk style general artificial intelligence, uh, you know, the kind that you see in science fiction films like The Matrix and so forth. So what exactly do we mean when we talk about artificial intelligence in the context of these specific capabilities on ISR and cyber in particular? That's a, that's a really great question. I'm really glad that, that you ask, ask it. Um, so I guess in my scenario, um, first and foremost, when I talk about artificial intelligence, uh, I'm really talking about essentially machine learning algorithms. So um, 
algorithms that are essentially using statistics to guess patterns in big data or massive amounts of data. And I think what's important to understand here is that machine learning uh, generally can correlate data, but it cannot really infer uh, causality. In other words, machine learning is all about correlation and not causation. And I think this is still a big problem when it comes to moving artificial intelligence. And I'm really not talking about these, um, you know, like a general AI or general artificial intelligence. I'm really talking about narrow artificial intelligence here. Um, so not an omnipresent uh, 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 you know, computer sort of like uh, we know from certain movies like Terminator and so forth or a 2001 Space Odyssey, right? I'm, I'm really talking about much more um, rudimentary systems here. And I think the problem here is that if you, if you, if the premise is that all these algorithms can only correlate data and I mean, you can't really move from uh, correlation to causation, you have an inherent explainability problem as it is called right and once you have an explainability problem because um, you can't really understand why your ai enabled let's say decision support system offers you as a military commander with a certain option a certain course of action in the middle of let's say a firefighter so it's very difficult to actually trust the system so i think there's still a big big issue when it comes to trusting these systems and so when I did my scenarios, so when I when I uh, wrote my scenarios, I was very conscious of the fact that there is a trust system that still that has still not been resolved. And I think we need to overcome this trust deficit, so to speak, if we really are going to move into. I, in one scenario, I talk about AI-enabled battle management systems. And the United States Air Force and all the other service branches in the United States are already working on such systems. To what degree, though, it will actually have any real impact will be largely dependent upon whether military commanders are actually going to be willing to trust the system and its recommendations, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I think this is, this is one of those technical stumbling blocks that we still will need to overcome. Having said that, it is possible. There are ways, there are projects, there is research being done that is that is uh, being conducted specifically on this issue. And so uh, my hypothesis for these scenarios is that it might be solved within the next decade. But having said that, of course, these are fictional scenarios and I clearly uh, outline also all the problems. And I think the other point uh, was really crucial that you where you when you said that a lot of these technologies are really not revolutionary and i would actually agree with you because at the end of the day yeah statistical analysis or um looking for statistical pattern in massive amounts of data we've done this to a certain degree already for a long time i think what's really revolutionary or could potentially be revolutionary here and 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 really important is that what we are trying to do here in many ways is really accelerate the operational pace of military operations. Yeah. So we are trying to accelerate the so-called kill chain that is really linking shooters and sensors. And I think this actually could in a way um, revolutionize um, our um, way of conducting warfare, at least when it comes to speeding up operations. I'm not really saying that this is going to have um, a fantastic impact on future military operations in terms of 
making military or you know operations more decisive but i do think it is fundamentally going to change the character of warfare if that makes sense to you absolutely i mean so you know your point about the kill chain is a perfect segue into what i want to talk about next which is sort of reflecting at the sort of political military dynamics in the Taiwan Strait that might lead up to a conflict, right? So you have, I mean, the broad picture here is that you have one party, People's Republic of China, interested in strategic revisionism, unifying Taiwan with China across the Taiwan Strait. You have the United States, which is fundamentally interested in preserving the status quo. And as a result, the core U.S. objective is deterring China from taking that action. So to deter China, the United States obviously relies on a core set of military capabilities in and around the region. In recent years, there's been a lot of commentary uh, that U.S. capabilities are beginning to appear to be insufficient given China's rapid pace of military modernization and quantitative expansion of its military capabilities. So that sort of brings me to the point that you just made, because in, in effect, I mean, the way I sort of think about the challenge of deterrence in the Taiwan Strait for the United States is um, effectively what the U.S. is seeking to practice is deterrence by denial here, right? Deterrence by punishment, uh, being sort of more familiar to the to those of us who spend time thinking about nuclear deterrence, is not really what the challenge in the Taiwan Strait is, right? If you're going to punish China with retaliation for invading Taiwan, you've already lost the political game because you've ceded Taiwan in the first place. So the, the task is to convey to China that the costs of invading Taiwan and carrying out a sustained campaign across the Taiwan Strait are so great that Xi Jinping simply should not bother. And so I think part of doing that, Franz, is I think has to do with sort of ironing out and figuring out these sort of issues pertaining to the kill chain, I mean, particularly when it comes to uh, integrating your sensors, uh, informing uh, you know your shooters and your sensors are making sure that they're all interlinked and that they're able to hold the targets that they need to at risk. And on the flip side, China has, I think, similar incentives. I think you talk about this uh, with your last two scenarios, right, in terms of degrading Taiwanese air defenses. I mean, this would be the core role for Chinese conventional precision strike systems, striking at sort of soft targets in Taiwan, um, suppression of enemy air defenses, and uh, degrading command and control where appropriate. So tell us a little bit about, you know, if you're sort of Xi Jinping and if you're, uh, you know, Joe Biden or, or whoever will be president of the United States in, in the 2030 timeframe that you're thinking about here, how do you sort of incorporate these technologies into the ways in which you practice uh, deterrence? Um, because, I mean, fundamentally, I think what we're getting into here are, you know, we're, we're moving away from technological determinism and starting to get to some kind of political and psychological topics. I'm wondering how you think about that in the context of a uh, potential future conflict in the Taiwan Strait. Yes, that's a very tricky question, of course. Uh, my first reaction would be that perhaps we have to move away from this idea that um, has been prevalent for the last couple of decades where we equate deterrence with presence, where um, essentially um, we have troops in the region that are deterring, are meant to deter um, Chinese military aggression against Taiwan or any other allies and partners of the United States. Um, because when we, you know, if we move away from the current force structure and really move to a much more network centric force structure that's really largely dependent upon um, standoff, long range um, uh, precision strikes and so forth, uh, those capabilities don't necessarily need to be in the region, right? If you look at the last national defense strategy, though, it clearly states that um, you need this uh, so-called blunt layer, you need a forward uh, deployed military presence, but the current disposition of military bases, those big bases are supposedly extremely vulnerable to Chinese precision strikes because we have entered this new era of uh, a global precision strike regime, right, as it is called, as this proliferation of long-range precision strike capabilities um, um, has, has, really, has really taken place over the last decade. So 
Um, it's a really interesting debate, and I think um, one would need to consider carefully what the trade-offs here are. And I think what's clear to me is that we need to move away perhaps from this concept of multi-purpose platforms um, such as the F-35, a very exquisite, very expensive uh, weapon system that can really do a lot of things, but where there are very few um, platforms out there because um, what you said earlier, deterrence by denial or this idea of deterring uh, by denial uh, implies also that, you're real, will, that your armed forces are willing to take punches and also um, are willing to get hit, which to me um, automatically means you need to have a, a, a force structure that's much more uh, ready to accept a certain amount of attrition in a military conflict, or at least you need want to signal your opponent that you're, you're willing actually to engage in a war of attrition when it comes to certain certain uh, scenarios such as an invasion of Taiwan or a uh, Chinese occupation of Taiwan. So I think um, the question then is if we if we want to have um, an armed if you want to have a joint force that's more attributable, so to speak, what does it really mean in terms of uh, yeah. technologies, right? And yeah. this is, I think, where one of my my scenarios are coming in, really, this idea of single-purpose platforms, unmanned, uh, uninhabited systems, and so forth, whether they're um, on the ocean, in the ocean, or up in the air, or on land. Um, I think this is really in the back of all of this uh reorganizing of the of the u.s armed forces so i think you know i think everything that you just said makes a ton of sense and um particularly in terms of you know what you said about attrition i mean that's why i think we see this big focus on resiliency right now in the united states right ensuring that uh sort of acknowledging that the first moments of a, of a crisis or a conflict in asia will result in the loss of of uh important assets um personnel and that the united states will need to have sort of the logistics, the resilience necessary to um, supplement those capabilities and continue on with um, effectively, you know, fighting this conflict uh, in Asia. So I think that's something that we see. Um, you know, Franz, we are sort of coming to the end of our time. So I did want to sort of ask you before we sort of close out, I did want to sort of get back to the technology a little bit because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think that ultimately is um, a big part of the picture here. Um, I mean, so, you know, there are in, in this sort of set of things that we talk about as emerging technologies uh, relevant to the future of war, there is a, uh, you know, there are certain technologies that get overhyped, certain technologies that get underhyped. Um, from your perspective, you know, if you had to sort of leave our listeners with um, one technology that you describe in this chapter, you know, be it sort of uh, autonomous underwater uh, vehicle swarms or hypersonic weapons or um, AI equipped ISR which of these do you think is sort of the most sort of underrated or, or underappreciated technology that has the greatest potential to, uh, and I'm going to be careful here with what I say, to affect the future course of war, right? Uh, be that in positive or negative ways. You know, it could lead to, as you said earlier, inadvertent nuclear escalation or inadvertent escalation more broadly. Which of these technologies has sort of the most potential to really, I think, uh, shock future political leaders and, and really, I think, um, do, uh directly affect the trajectory uh, of a conflict in its early stages? I think the most important thing to consider in all of this is that I really don't want to talk about a singular technological capability here, just because um, what I really want to focus on or what this chapter is all, all about um, is about the integration of different uh, 
technological capabilities. And in particular, what I wanted to say in um, my previous uh, uh, answer was this integration of emerging technological capabilities with so-called legacy systems is crucial. So in one of my scenarios, I take an existing Chinese torpedo and um, equip it with AI-enabled sensors in order to turn it into uh, an autonomous platform. And I think this is exactly what I'm talking about and where we need to be really smart in, in, in the future about our force structure and about integrating these dif different capabilities in order to field these platforms earlier, perhaps, than our adversaries or our potential adversaries, rather. Um, going through um, my list of technologies that I'm describing in the scenario, I think I would say that the most interesting one, to me at least, are uh, battle management systems. There is a, a scenario where I talk about um, an advanced battle management system. This is actually the name of um, a, a system um, that the United States Air Force is working on, and it might actually deploy, uh, well, it might get actually operationally deployed in a couple of years from now. And I think what's really interesting here is that this system is really capable of essentially, uh, think of it sort of like as a military Uber app, where you can, as a military commander, see uh, a common operating picture, see your own assets, see what the enemy has, and then also try to coordinate your next moves or like your next uh, operations uh, from, let's say, this display, uh, like from, from a display, right? And I think here what I find interesting is that this is specifically, uh, this goes really to the heart of this so-called um, um, new or next wave of, of military technological capabilities that are upon us. And this idea of um, an accelerated operational pace um, triggered by or caused by having a more complete common operating picture and because of that, you're just much more aware. You have much more battle space awareness. And because of this, on the one hand, you can really speed up your military operations. On the other hand, you can be more precise about what targets you hit and also perhaps um, avoid collateral damage, as it's called, um, while you're conducting your operations. It's easier to deconflict different different operations. So your uh, complexity of operations is increasing while also, of course, um, perhaps simplifying it in a certain way if this is all coordinated by AI enabled or AI algorithms that is machine learning or deep learning algorithms. Of course, again, it comes back to my original point. We haven't solved this yet. There are massive uh, technical problems that need to be overcome. There are cultural problems that need to be overcome before this really becomes a reality. And I'm also skeptical whether we are really going down the right path here when I think about the Russian and Chinese reaction to this new form or this new character of war fighting as propagated by the United States, because they are very specifically working on operating concepts and technologies to really counteract um, this new form of uh, this new Amer uh, way of American, this new form of uh, warfare. Um, and I think this is going to be perhaps um, problematic in the long term. Mm -hmm. Well, Franz, thank you so much for joining me today and, and walking through some of these issues. I know that uh, you know many of our listeners, I'm sure, will have benefited from uh, your insight on these issues, and it was you know particularly fun to sort of geek out over some of the technology issues and talk about some of the higher level questions that arise from many of these conversations about the future of war. Um, you know, I'm looking forward to uh, hopefully doing this uh, soon in person when travel becomes <laughs> uh, possible. Um, but I really want to thank you for uh, taking the time to uh, come on the podcast today. Thank you, Ankit. It was great. It was great.
Absolutely. And uh, for listeners, if you like what you heard on the podcast, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. And if you've been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't yet left us a review, uh, please do so. You can do that on Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your shows from. It really helps the show. And if you have suggestions for future episodes or potential guests, uh, definitely feel free to get in touch with me uh, either on Twitter or by email. Um, thank you so much for listening, and I'll be back soon with more.